If you're following the, the news and uh, the headlines and everything, it seems like uh, yet again, we are in a situation where our, our government is challenged to figure out how to pay its own bills and come together and avoid shutting down and not being able to pay uh, those in the military, those who work in various government agencies. But supposedly there's some agreement that for another two weeks, you know, the government can pay the bills and work towards a budget. Uh, it seems to me it's yet more evidence that we have a hard time working together, uh, different parties. Uh, it's a, it seems to be not just a political problem, though. Uh, I, I read in the past about uh, how churches have trouble getting together. You can find all kinds of examples of the challenges. Uh, one of the worst examples that I remember reading uh, a while ago is that one church split over essentially how much ham one of the people got at a fellowship meal. It just became a real bitter point for them, and they were judging others for the amount of ham that they got and how much they didn't get, and wound up splitting a church. But lest we give up on government and church, we probably ought to recognize that we have a hard time getting along in marriage, even in the church or outside of the church. We have a hard time getting along at work. We have a hard time getting along in friendships. It seems like we have serious issues working together in every area of our lives. Our passage today is Mark chapter 3. We're looking at verses 20 through 35 of Mark chapter 3. And in this passage, uh, we see an interesting insight into working together, into getting along with one another, and it revolves around Jesus. And it seems to me the one of the, the key points here is that the biggest problem we all probably have, and why it's so hard to work together, it's hard to be married, it's hard to be a church, it's hard to be a government, it's hard to be friends, it's hard to parent, all those kind of things. One of the biggest problems we have, it clearly comes out in this passage, is that we have a hard time listening. We have a hard time listening. Uh, we think we know better than the other person. We think we know what they're going to say. We think we know what their motives are. Uh, we think we know. And whether we're politicians or church members, family, children, or whatever it is, there's hope. And it's right here in this passage. If we will listen to Jesus. Would you read with me his words, God's word, Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. And he came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, He has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul. And he cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself and, and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? 
If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter that strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven. The sons of men. And whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word. Lord, meet us here today. Uh, We ask that you would transform us. Change us to be more like Jesus. Change us to be a people who listen to Jesus. Who listen to each other. Who recognize we do not know all things, but you do. By your word and your spirit, lead us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So our passage is after Jesus has withdrawn to the sea, we read about that earlier in the chapter, and then he's gone up on the mountain and called followers that he would name apostles. Now he's returned home, we read, to Capernaum, and it's probably the home of Peter and his mother-in-law and extended family that we saw back in chapter 1. Jesus is from Nazareth, that's where he grew up, it seems like that's where they probably still lived. And this home referred to here in Capernaum is probably Peter's house. It's Jesus' base of operations there in that nearby town. This time, there's another large crowd, we read. Great crowd, so much so that they they can't even gather together to eat. People are pressing in from all sides. They can't get a meal together or any of those kind of things, it says. And again, not only is there a large crowd, but there is opposition that there are people opposing Jesus. And this time, it's not only the scribes, as uh, somebody said in our youth group, you know, the scribes seem to spawn in just all the time. You're like, oh, scribes again. Uh, if, you're, if you're over 30, you probably don't know what that means. Don't worry about it. But the scribes show up. And also, though, the opposition is coming from Jesus' own family. Mark brackets this section, if you noticed, starting off with the setting and then mentioning Jesus' family and then some other things happen and then he closes with Jesus' family. And so there's these two groups closely set together which have in common this opposition to Jesus. And it stems from, I think, a failure to really listen to Jesus. To understand what he's saying. To understand, in fact, who he is. 
much less hear what he has to say. They have that common problem, and they don't even realize it. I think we can take something from that because you can't really be listening to Jesus. You can't really be hearing him and believing who he is and at the same time opposing him. And that seems to be happening in our passage where it seems like people are with him and some people are obviously against him. And yet they have this in common that they don't listen. So the question is, as we look at this passage, do you really listen to Jesus? I mean, do you really listen to Jesus? Do you listen to him as one who has authority to speak into your life? Do you listen to him as more than just, hey, a good teacher with some wise words to say? Do you listen to him as one who has the right to tell you the truth and to ask you, command you even to obey? That's what we wrestle with here in this passage. Who Jesus is, and and are we really willing to accept that and listen to him in that way? So as we look at this passage, I'd encourage you to listen to Jesus Listen to Jesus and decide for yourself if he is who he says he is. We're going to look at first the the obvious opponents of Jesus, the scribes, and then we will look at his family and their opposition, and then we'll look at who Jesus says he is more clearly. So first, you know, the the question is, who who is Jesus? If you're listening to him, you, you, you might... If you're not listening well, hear what the scribes have to say and give it some merit. You know, their accusation is that Jesus is on Satan's team, a liar. And that's the question. Is Jesus on Satan's team, a liar? He claims to be from God, but maybe he's from hell. Look at verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he's possessed by Beelzebul. And he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. You know, Jesus is doing amazing things. They're not disputing that. That there are people who seem to be demon-possessed, and Jesus makes their lives better. He commands those demons, and they come out. What What they're accusing Jesus of is that he's actually in league with not just those demons, but in fact, the prince of demons, Satan himself. There's some debate in the background from a you know, modern scholarly perspective as to what Beelzebul is all about. Uh, it most likely, I think, is from the false god Baal in the Old Testament and means something like Lord of the Flies. You know, just a, a gross kind of image. But it also has uh, echoes of and, and a sense of master of the house. And as you think about the images Jesus uses to talk about Satan, you know, a house divided, a kingdom divided, you say, oh, well, maybe he's got that idea in mind as well. But either way, it's very clear here in the passage that everyone is taking it to mean that Beelzebul is the prince of demons, the ruler of demons. And essentially what the scribes are doing is, as we would say today, demonizing their opponent. They are literally demonizing Jesus, saying he's in league with demons. When we say that today, we don't mean that literally, I don't think, usually, right? When, when you demonize an opponent, you're essentially treating them 
as worse than human. You're treating them as someone evil. You're dehumanizing them so that they, they, you don't have to listen to them, right? You don't have to regard what they say. You, you don't have to respect anything about them, in fact. And this is a, a rampant reality in our culture today. It's, it's somewhat like an aspect of cancel culture. You can, you can just say, you no longer have value. Everything you ever did in your life is a lie. We'll just toss it out because you're bad. And we don't want to hear you. We don't want anything to do with you. It's a, a mob mentality, group mentality. And that seems to be what's going on here. You know, whether or not they actually believe Jesus, Jesus is in league with demons, they are demonizing him. They are dehumanizing him. They are making him someone that they do not have to listen to. Someone they do not have to respect. Someone they do not have to consider, but can in fact dismiss. And you know, we do that in various ways, right? We, even falling short of just totally disregarding someone and speaking ill of them. Uh, we, we have something in our human nature uh, that researchers have called confirmation bias, where we, by nature, filter out information that disagrees with what we already believe. And we actively search out information that confirms what we already believe. We're very quick to come up with excuses for people on our team, you know, our political party or our particular theological views or whatever it is, you know, against the other team. We're very quick to jump to conclusions about the other guys, the other girls, the other team. And say, well, you know, they're just doing that because this and that. But our, our person, oh, no, they're, they must, it must be a misunderstanding. You know, this, is a, this is called confirmation bias. We have this internal yes man, yes woman, who's filtering everything and trying to reinforce what we already believe. And that's, that's a, just something we have to do as human beings. We just so much information coming at us, right? But it's also a downside. And it prevents us from listening to things that challenge us. Not just listening, but actually hearing what we need to hear. And then along comes someone like Jesus, and he just <clears throat> won't fit into our worldview. He says things that are extremely challenging. The last will be first. The first will be last. you got to lose your life uh, to save it. If you want to save your life, you'll wind up losing it. He does things that people can't do. He, he casts out demons. He heals the sick. He stills the wind and the waves. He lives perfectly without sin. And, 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 and you know, it's understandable, I hope you realize, for people who, who have not received the Spirit of God to say that's just unbelievable. And to filter it out and to find excuses to keep believing that it's unbelievable. Because the implications are... If that's true, then I really need to consider who Jesus is, and I really don't want to because I just have this sense that it's going to ruin my life, and I'm not going to be able to do what I want to do. And that's true. But that doesn't mean it's not better. And Jesus challenges these folks who are stuck in their ways, who are saying that he's on Satan's team, and he challenges them essentially to use their minds and, and think. He's not calling them to some unreasonable faith. He's saying, just think about what you're saying. Use your mind and think about the accusation you're making. Look at verse 23. 
He called them, sounds like the scribes and the you know, folks opposing him, he called them to himself, and he began speaking to them in parables, and the sense there is not so much parables like we think of, the Good Samaritan or whatever, but uh, sayings and, and illustrations would be another way to put that. He says to them, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. He says, look, even in a big uh, institution like a, a kingdom, it's not going to stand if it's divided against itself. In a smaller institution like a household, it's not going to stand if there's division within it. It will crumble, not be able to stand. In verse 26, he says, if <clears throat> Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. He's, he's finished. The conclusion seems to be that's what happens. So it's ridiculous to say, Jesus says, that I'm with Satan, that he's not going to stand. That's not a good strategy. That just doesn't make sense. Just think about your own accusation. Think about your own objections. Now, you might know these words from Abraham Lincoln. I didn't realize, but it's when he was running for Senate before the Civil War in the late 1850s. He used this image of a house divided against itself, uh, of, of a kingdom divided against itself to speak of the United States and how if it remained divided over the issue of slavery and states' rights, then things would go poorly and it would crumble. And he wound up working very hard to make that not happen and bring unity as much as he could anyway. And that's the, the image here is that it, you just, it, it makes no sense to say that a good strategy is to, you know, kill your allies, right? To work against those who are on your team. That's just a bad strategy. And to accuse Jesus of being on Satan's team is just irrational. It doesn't make sense. It's a way of avoiding what Jesus is actually saying. Of avoiding who he claims to be. But you know, it's not just the scribes who are doing that, right? We're kind of used to that. If you, if you know the Bible and you've read the New Testament at all, you've, you've been coming here and heard the last few sermons. In these, we're, we're used to the scribes doing this, but it's not just the scribes. It's his own people who aren't listening. His own people kind of make this accusation in a way, have this belief that he is out of his mind. Oh, that he is a lunatic, to use C.S. Lewis's word. He claims to be from God, but maybe he's lost his mind. Maybe Jesus is the one who is irrational. Look at verse 21. When his own people, referring to his family as we see as the passage goes on, when his own people, verse 21, heard of this, most likely the large crowds that were gathering there in Capernaum at Peter's house and, and coming in such numbers that he can't even eat, that they're just so swamped with people that they can't even sustain themselves physically. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him. Other translations use the, the language of he came out to seize him. For they were saying he has lost his senses 
Uh, another translation of that would be he's out of his mind. He doesn't know what he's doing. We've got to go save him from himself because he's not taking good care of himself. They're, they're not really listening. They're, they're not paying attention to what he's doing. They believe Jesus needs help. And they're going to go grab him. That, that, that language of take custody is, is not unlike seizing someone to bring them to justice in the court of law. You know, that strength of grabbing someone and removing them. And by the way, this is one of those passages as a side note. Uh, Joseph doesn't show up here when they talk about his, his mother and his brothers. Uh, so it's very likely that he, he's, most people believe he's probably passed away at this point. Joseph is probably dead. Uh, it, but it also does mention his siblings. So it's, it's, it's a place that refutes what some traditions teach, which is that, Jesus, or that Mary remained a virgin forever. Uh, she didn't. The Bible says she had other children. Half-brothers, half-sisters to Jesus. You can see that in other places too. In chapter 6, verse 3 of Mark, they show up. Uh, but back to the, the main point of this text... His family thinks he's out of his mind. They're, they're not really listening to him. They're not really considering that he, he maybe is someone besides who they're thinking, just a family member. And so they go to take custody of him, to grab him, to get him out of there, to help him, uh, and get him off the streets. The family thought, we're on Jesus' side by doing what seems right in our own eyes. By doing what we would do if, you know, well, maybe not. Doing what we think other people should do for us when we're going astray, but maybe not. It's not clear, other than the fact that they're not considering, they're not, they and the scribes both, they're not bringing God in the picture and considering the reality that maybe God has in fact kept His promise to come among His people. That God has kept His promise to dwell among them. They're not considering the fact that what Jesus says He actually means. That He has come to give them life. That He has come to set them free. That He has come to give His life as a ransom. Not to be served, but to serve. You know, saying that Jesus is on Satan's team is irrational. It doesn't make sense. It's a way of avoiding what he actually says. But so is saying Jesus is out of his mind. It doesn't make sense beyond this irrational attempt to avoid what Jesus actually says and avoid who he is. And that leads us to our, our third point. You know, is Jesus a liar? Is Jesus a lunatic? Or is Jesus over all things? The Lord. <clears throat> is Jesus over all things? The Lord. Look at verse 27. He says he has power over Satan indirectly. But this is in the context of having cast out demons and being accused of being in league with the prince of demons. He says, verse 27, No one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man. Then he will plunder his house. 
know, even his enemies are, are admitting essentially that Jesus has power to cast out demons, that he is freeing people from that. They say, oh, we must be in league with Satan. Jesus says, that's not possible. That would destroy Satan's empire. What's really happening, Jesus says, is that I'm actually stronger than the one who is the strong man. I am stronger than the one who is oppressing these people. I am stronger than the evil one who is seeking to harm and kill and destroy. I am stronger than him. And I have bound him. And I can bind him. And I can set people free. He says it implicitly. That's part of why it says parables here is that he's not being direct even as he teaches and illustrates this point. That Jesus is, is not only not with Satan, he's more powerful. And he is working for good. He's able to beat evil. But there's more than that. He's, he's over all things. He's got that power over Satan. But he also offers grace to all. He offers grace toward all. Look at these words. And this is just one of the most amazing things. I hope it just sinks deep down into your heart. Look at verse 28. Because we get caught up in these weird words about the unforgivable sin. Before we get into that, listen to what he says. Verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be given, forgiven the sons of men, human beings. And whatever blasphemies they utter. Just stop right there. Jesus says, every sin can be forgiven. Every blasphemy uttered against Jesus, against himself, seems to be the implication, can be forgiven. Jesus offers this grace toward all. In fact, not much further down the road, Jesus offers forgiveness even as he is dying on the cross, saying in Luke Chapter 23, verse 34, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. He is offering forgiveness, not merely to those who call him names and say he's in league with Satan, but to those who are literally killing him unjustly, convicting him of wrong when he had done nothing wrong. And he says, there is forgiveness available to you. Don't miss that. Don't get hung up on the unforgivable sin and just tying yourself in knots. That's, that's from Satan to tie you up in that. He wants you to miss this first part where Jesus is literally offering forgiveness for any sin you have ever committed or ever will commit. That's the grace of God that only God can offer to you. And Jesus himself is offering it to you. Will you listen? Will you listen? There is forgiveness available for any and every sin you have ever committed or ever will commit, and it comes through Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you hear that? Or do you continue to beat yourself up for something or exclude yourself from the kingdom of God because of what you did? You're... You're practicing your own form of confirmation bias. You believe you're not worthy. You believe that, that you have problems that God can't. You are limiting God himself. There's, there's, a, there's a reason we do that a lot of times. It's because this is so hard to believe. It is so hard to believe that God would actually forgive a messed up wretch like you, like me. 
Someone who's wasted their resources, wasted their life. But he does. No matter what point in your life you are, whether you're a little child or a 92-year-old man, God offers grace through Jesus. That's the message that, that we have to hear above all else. That He offers this grace toward all. Each and every. And in that context, we can address this strange issue, this debatable passage about verse 29. Whoever sins, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they're saying He has an unclean spirit. You know, if you're listening closely enough to Jesus in this passage or in the past, if you've ever listened closely enough to Him to be concerned that maybe you've committed the unforgivable sin and, and maybe that you're not going to go to heaven because of it. If, you, if you've ever wrestled with that, if you've ever listened to Jesus closely enough to consider that, you haven't committed this sin. Here's the thing. These are His enemies. These are the enemies of Jesus accusing him of these things, and they hadn't committed it. He doesn't say they committed it. He says, essentially, watch out. You, this is the grace of God at work. You're, you're really close to committing unforgivable sin, which is to attribute the work of God through the Spirit of God to Satan, to say that God is at work for evil, not good, particularly through the Spirit. To attribute the very good works, undeniably, undeniably good works of God through the Spirit to the evil one. And to have that conviction deep down, not as a momentary thing like you might say to your parents, you know, I, I hate you. Very rarely does anyone really mean that and it doesn't last. It's an emotional statement, right? This is to say, God is evil and doing evil, and abide in that place. It rules out any possibility of forgiveness, right? Because you've already said God doesn't do good. And you would need to change before you receive that. To really listen to Jesus in this circumstance, you're, you're not guilty of this sin. And this grace that he offers can't lead anywhere else except worship if you're really listening to Jesus. And by worship, I mean obedience. I mean a changed life. I mean joy. I mean transformation. Look what he says in verse 33 and following. His parents show up, or his, sister, his, his mother and his Brothers show up, and he answers those who said, your mother and your brothers are here. And he says, who are my mother and my brothers? Verse 34, looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is by no means advocating neglecting your family. 1 Timothy 5.8, Paul says, you know, if you don't take care of the needs of your own family, you're worse than an unbeliever. What Jesus is advocating here is the priority of serving God, of yielding your understanding to God, of yielding your will to God, of obeying what God says, of really listening to Him. 
repenting of the ways that you have gone away from God and disregarded what he says, repenting of your hard heart in circumstances where you've not opened up, uh, repenting of the things that you don't want to let go of, repenting of your repentance, and turning to God and saying, God, I trust you. Really believing these promises that he offers, that he does forgive, and repenting the fact that we doubt that. We doubt God's good grace and forgiveness and committing, actually committing. Lord, I want to do your will. Lord, it could be costly. It could ruin me financially. It could lose and strain relationships that are important to me. But to prioritize God overall is what Jesus is talking about. That that makes you a part of His family. That brings you into the kingdom. And within the kingdom, you have a God who will provide for you. You have a God who is in Jesus right here, literally come in the flesh to live for you perfectly. To die for you sacrificially. To take your sin and pay the full cost of it, not merely on the cross, but in the power, remaining under the power of death for three days and rising victorious, that your sins might be forgiven. God doesn't just push things under the carpet. God doesn't say, no, no, it's okay, don't worry about it. God says, I will pay the price for you. Not because you're worthy. Give up that lie. Listen to what he says. But because he's a God of grace and forgiveness. And a God who offers to you hope and life and light. I've implicitly been, and explicitly a couple times mentioned C.S. Lewis and this famous saying that I want to read it just briefly. A man who's merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with someone who said he was a poached egg, Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. I think if you look and listen to what Jesus is all about, you have to come to the conclusion that he is Lord and God. There is another option. People now add legend to that. We could talk about it a different day. But the, the Scripture is clear. And the response for each of us should be to bow down with gratitude and thanksgiving for the great forgiveness he has offered. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you that you are true and trustworthy, that you are God in the flesh. Thank you, Lord, that what you said you meant, and it was true and still is, and that you are so gracious to us. Open our eyes to that, our ears, our hearts, to be moved by it, Lord, by the truth of your word, by the truth of who you are, a gracious, loving God. We pray 
In Jesus' name, amen.